0: I will be reading from Romans chapter 10 this morning, verses 1 to 15. Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved." For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how do they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they here? Without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news.
1: This is our text for this morning. I want to welcome all of you this Lord's Day morning, this Resurrection Sunday. Uh, all who are guests here, family and friends, we're delighted to have you with us. Um, this is a fine group of people. You're surrounded by sinners who are saved by grace. Grace means undeserved favor. Let's pray that the Lord will prepare our hearts to hear his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you again with great thanks. I thank you for this celebration this morning. I thank you for all that are here in this Gather, gathering room as well as in the fellowship hall watching on video Lord may you bless the ears of all who are here today may you bless the saints center saved by grace to be encouraged and reminded of the hope that we have in the accomplished work of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, who rules and reigns now and forevermore, that our hope is in Him, and that we're assured of everlasting life, not because of anything good in and of ourselves, but all that has come from outside of us by way of the Gospel, your good news, resurrection life, in Christ, your Son, our Lord. And Lord, for any and all who are here who are not saved, who do not know you in a saving way, I pray that today would be the day that you will transform their hearts, Move them from the category of unbelief to the category of absolute confident belief. In your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Some people ironically say of preachers that they always speak in superlatives. (laughs) Things described are, you know, always the greatest, always the biggest, always the grandest, always the most exquisite, or always the worst. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Although that may be true, that, you know, preachers use the ultimate too much, there's no argument that the greatest word in the Christian vocabulary is the word salvation. Because included in that word are things like Forgiveness of sins. Unconditional love. Joy. Holiness. Power. Immortality. Resurrection. And everlasting life. All of these things are wrapped up in that word, salvation. And I know of no better way... And no better day than to proclaim that word than on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Okay, every day for the Christian is Resurrection Sunday. Amen? Every day for the Christian is Resurrection Sunday. Every morning is Easter morning, if you will, for the believer in Jesus Christ. But there is this day that is set aside perhaps more by the world than even the church itself. Because many people will go to Easter who would never shadow the doorway of a church. They come on Easter and they come on Christmas. But this is a day that's something special. Therefore, this is the perfect opportunity to talk about how salvation, again, to talk about how salvation is all that is synonymous with the question a Philippian jailer asked long ago, what shall I do to be saved? Or the question that a rich young ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or perhaps you're asking this morning, how can I know for certain that when I die, because I know I will die, that I'll go to heaven? The things pertaining to salvation are made very plain and very clear in Scripture, that is that salvation is to be saved from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. For the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, all people who breathe air sin. They fall short of the perfect holy standard of God to get into heaven. That's His standard holy, sinless perfection. Therefore, salvation is the deliverance from sin and its consequences. As it embraces the plan of God and His work of redemption. We're in need of redemption. Providing peace with God and the peace of God. Peace with God and the peace inside of God. Certainty that when I do die, I know I'll be with the Lord. You know, someone has said that Easter is the birthday of hope. It's a good way to put it. The birthday of hope. When without Christ's resurrection, we are dead in our sins and we have no hope. And we would be fools to gather here if he has not risen from the dead. There's no encouragement in the afterlife if he's still in the grave. For God is one. He has one plan and one way of salvation that assures eternal life. Now, we cannot jump too quickly into the significance of the resurrection before we have embraced the truth of the resurrection. For it was C.S. Lewis who said long ago, he reminded us, that there's a tendency in our age to believe something because it's good rather than because it's true. Oh, it sounds good. The question is, is it true? If it's not true, we are of the most people, once again, to be pitied. Oh, those poor saps gathering together, singing together, listening to this Bible read out loud we would be fools if Christ is still in the grave. Now, we've already heard the facts of the resurrection this morning, but my question is, how does it affect the certainty of salvation? This morning, I want to speak along three different lines. First, these are outlined for you in your bulletin, if you have one, is the possession of saving faith, Number two, the confession of saving faith. And briefly, we'll spend time on the proclamation of saving faith. Possession, confession, and proclamation of saving faith. First, with regard to the subject of possession of saving faith. Okay, what is it that we're asked to believe in order to be saved? What is it that God is demanding of me? What is it that he's demanding of you as creatures made in his image that you would believe this in order that you might be saved? And in order that you might have have confidence that you are saved. What is it? Now, the word that we read this morning, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. To be justified means to be declared free from all blame. And we are blameworthy. Think about your thought life alone. Before a holy God. You're blameworthy. I'm blameworthy. But by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he justifies the sinner. Declaring them free of all that blame. That's forgiven. But those verses describe the possession of a faith that saves people. question is, saved from what? Let me be blunt and to the point. Saved from God. That is to say, saved from his wrath. Salvation is to be saved from God, by God. That is to be saved from hell. That's what salvation is. Now, many people are attending services today around the world. Witness? Amen? Amen. They're professing something about Jesus, but not possessing eternal life in Jesus. There are those attending service believing that Jesus is indeed one of the ways to God. Others are incredibly zealous. They're emotionally spiritual, quote-unquote, people, willing to put up with hearing about Jesus on Easter, yet don't possess faith that saves. From the beginning of time, throughout time, people have always been zealously spiritual or religious. There's always been religion. God has created a void, as it's been said, in our heart that demands that we worship something or someone, and typically we will worship ourselves. Yeah, we do. We worship ourselves. But as zealous as one may be, Paul points out the fact in verse 2 that you can be so zealous, the most zealous religious person in the world, but not according to knowledge. In other words, not according to true truth. Amen? Notice this. He's addressing very religious Jews in his day and right there in verse 2 he said I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to what? knowledge. Paul makes it clear that sincerity and intensity in religion cannot save you. This is a message of love for you this morning. Confident reassurance for Christians. Confident declaration of absolute truth if you're here and not a Christian. Paul goes on, I mean, he talks also about, you know, enthusiasm. A desire to live a spiritual life, not based on proper understanding of the giver of life, that won't save you either. Acknowledging God as creator, and everyone does deep down. The Bible tells us you can say you're an atheist, but you're really not an atheist. You can stand in awe of creation itself, but that will not save you. Paul is saying that zealous ambition leads no—it leads to some place, but no place good. Jesus talked about zealous religious ambition, and he referred to it as the broad road, the wide gate, and he said many go in that way. They're very sincere, they're very religious, but that's the broad road that leads to destruction. They have passion, they have fervor, they have enthusiasm, but not in accordance to knowledge. Sincerity and zealousness are oftentimes in our day allowed to eclipse divine revelation. That is, friends, the Holy Bible. That's divine revelation, the Holy Bible. Many religious peoples and groups, evolutionists, they're very zealous, but they're in pursuit of that which is not true. There's a show, I don't know if it's still on, but I watched it last year. It was called uh, In Search of Bigfoot. And man, I get a kick out of watching that show. These are very zealous characters in pursuit of Sasquatch. They're in pursuit of something that doesn't exist, zealously pursuing Sasquatch. And in the midst of it, they do experience things. They're so convinced that they experience certain sightings. They don't know what the sightings are, but they're sightings of something. They, they experience sounds. And anyone will experience sounds if you go into the uh, woods in the middle of the night. It's very frightening. I, do, I am not an outdoorsman. I do not want to be in the woods at night by myself looking for something that's nine foot tall, supposedly. And that leads to emotion, right? They're very emotional about their experiences. Many people think that as long as you're sincere about God or a God, it doesn't matter what you believe. So long as you're seeking God, so long as you're Seeking spirituality with diligent sincerity, in the end, people think, God will accept me. Paul hits his readers with a dose of reality that says, no, he won't. Can I get a witness on this Easter morning? Zeal is of no value unless it's according to knowledge, he says. That is, zeal directed by the word of God from the God of the word. There is one God. There is but one way. So Paul's fundamental charge here in verses 1 and 2 is that Israel, that's the context, has not understood its own scriptures. They had the Bible, but didn't rightly understand it. The consequence of which is that they have sought salvation the wrong way. A way that seems right to a man, the Bible says, but the end thereof is? Death. Destruction. It may seem right. You think it's right, but it leads to death. A grave error. That's just as important for many in our day who profess to follow, here it is, the ethics of Jesus. People think if you follow the ethical teaching of Jesus, you'll be saved. Mahatma Gandhi. Familiar with that name? Gandhi? Gandhi? He lived from 1869 to 1948. He led the movement for independence in India. Using nonviolent resistance, he fought for the poor, he fought for the rights of women, and was often imprisoned for his protests. He lived modestly, he lived simply, and very often fasted for long periods of time, abstaining from food to stand for what was good and what was socially. Right. And while protesting against the wrongs done to human beings, he was assassinated in 1948 and since then has been viewed as a martyr. Having cared for the oppressed, having cared for the rights of the poor, many refer to Gandhi as a Christian. Did you know that? Perhaps you do. Because he did so much for social justice, they said, well, yeah, he's a Christian. Yet, Gandhi never referred to himself as a Christian. As a matter of fact, he said of Jesus, Gandhi said, he viewed Jesus as, I quote, a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, and a great teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. His death on the cross was a great example to the world. But went on to say, my heart cannot accept that there was anything mysterious or miraculous about his death. Gandhi said, the message of Jesus as I understand it is contained in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If then I had to face only the Sermon on the Mount in my own interpretation of it, I would not hesitate to say, oh yes, in that sense, I am a Christian. In other words, he believed what it means to be a Christian like many in our day is to be a good person. To be a Christian means to be a good person. To follow and do your best to live like Jesus. To do your best to follow Judeo-Christian principles. But, small words, three letters, big meaning. But, the Bible contradicts that definition as to what it means to be a Christian. To follow that through, Gandhi then didn't live under the favor of God, but actually under the wrath of God. Not to pick on Gandhi, but to simply point out the grave error of moral virtue as the way to be right with God. God, as zealous as one may be, like Gandhi, does not accept people based on the good deeds that they do. point is, friends, no one can do enough good deeds to merit God's favor because we are all defiled by sin from which we need to be saved from. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law. Is God's law good? Yeah, it's hanging on the wall. It's perfect, as a matter of fact. Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. In other words, doing all of God's commandments all of the time perfectly, you will live forever. Because to perfectly uphold the law, that would be sinlessness. And the consequence of sin is what? Death. That's why nobody put Jesus to death. The Bible says he gave himself up. Or he never would have died. Because he was sinless. He gave up his life. No one takes my life, Jesus said. I lay it down freely. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to raise it up again. Again. As they say in this out. No one can meet the standard of holy perfection. No one can live according to the law. We all fall short. Amen. Far short. So the requirement is not what we do, but the the, the requirement is the righteousness that God provides that's based on faith. Are you with me on this Easter morning? Notice verse 6, but, three letters, small word, big meaning, but. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, it's just as impossible for a person to be saved by an attempt of holding to or upholding God's law perfectly as it would be for one of God's creatures to bring Jesus out of glory or have to ra- raised him from the grave. Anyone have that power? No, we do not. As sinners, we haven't the ability to carry out the law perfectly and therefore live forever in the presence of Almighty Holy God. What we need is faith because faith, here's what faith does. Faith looks away from ourselves. If you're looking inside of yourself for salvation, you'll never find it because there's nothing there but corruption. Oh, you don't know how good I am. God knows how good you ain't. <laughs> Faith looks to what God has done. Faith looks to who God is. Salvation's not in here. You can sit with your legs crossed and you can do this with your arms and you know, concentrate on your navel and hmm all day long. You'll never find good. God's righteousness comes from outside of us. It comes down to us. That's why it's called grace. That's why it's referred to as mercy. He provides a holy righteousness that he slaps over you by faith that allows you into heaven. And it's a righteousness that comes by way of his son who came out of heaven, took on a human body, lived this law out perfectly... And then laid his life down because God says in his word without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins. That's why God's way the gospel is truly offensive. It absolutely assaults our human pride. Only God can grant spiritual life to those who have no interest in the things of God. I grew up hearing all about this truth. But deep down, had no true interest in God. I didn't want to go to hell. Don't get me wrong. I didn't want to go to hell. And I knew Jesus was the name above all names. And I knew that there's power in the name of Jesus. I realized that people don't cuss and say, Buddha. Because there's no power in that name. They say Jesus Christ because there's power in that name. Take the name of Buddha in vain? Really? It's Christ crucified that's an assault to our human pride. But God can only grant life. God is the only one who can grant life to people who are spiritually dead and want nothing to do with him. All of a sudden, you walk into church one day, you hear the gospel on the street, and boom, you see your desperate need to be saved. That's him at work. That's not you. That's not anything good in you or me saying, okay, I've reasoned among, amongst all the gods of the world, and, you know, I consider Jesus to be the best option. Wrong. If you realize he is the way, the truth, and the life, it's because of the great, grand work of God the Holy Spirit bringing you to the conviction of your sin and showing you you have a desperate need that is not within you. It comes from outside of you. The gospel, the good news. Turning an unbeliever into a believer. Notice this where Paul says, do not say in your heart. He's citing Deuteronomy 9 where God was promising Israel at that time long ago that they will indeed enter the promised land, but reminding them why they'll enter the promised land. Notice this. Do not say in your heart, he says to Israel, after the Lord your God has thrust them out, that that means the enemies that they would face, that God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness Thank you. (laughs) Of your heart are you going in to possess their land? But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Emphasizing righteousness is by faith, not by deeds. So Paul here in the New Testament briefly cites this portion of the text saying, you're not right with God because of your own righteousness. You can only enter because of God's promises, His faithfulness, His righteousness as a grace gift. That's it. We can't, we can't boast. Can anyone boast here? Is anyone willing to stand up and boast? That they're good enough to stand in the sight of Almighty God who's holy and righteous? I hope not. Saving faith recognizes... that righteousness to enter God's presence... doesn't come from within us... but recognizes that our righteousness is granted to us... by faith and trust in Jesus Christ who rose again. He is our hope. He is our life. Now, in order to be joined to God... now and forever, you know, when you die... to be joined by faith... Is to be united to God by faith. It's to believe this as truth. So the resurrection gives meaning to the cross, doesn't it? He died for the sins of many. And he rose again to validate who he indeed was. The one and only son of God. And the only way to be right with God. Now, there have been many people who died on crosses throughout history. And we could list Jesus as just another one of those victims. But the resurrection gives eternal meaning to his cross. Faith in the resurrection makes possible faith in the cross where he paid for sin and guilt. See, it's this truth, friends, that unbelievers stumble. When an unbeliever hears this message... They stumble over this. The Bible declares that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not what? Perish, Perish, but have Everlasting everlasting life. Paul here is talking about the gospel, the good news, by first talking about the resurrection. Notice at the end of the text that Mark read, we hear the gospel good news. But to get there, he talks about resurrection. Because the resurrection is an inseparable component to the good news of salvation. So if you talk about the gospel, you have to talk about the resurrection. If you talk about the resurrection, you have to talk about the gospel. Because the one entails the other. Amen? You reject the gospel, you reject salvation. You reject the resurrection, you reject the gospel. So if you, if, if you believe that this is a, 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 a fictitious story, you know, to believe in Jesus is like believing in Santa Claus. And you don't believe he rose again from the dead. You're not saved. The gospel and the resurrection are that closely tied together. Part and partial, the resurrection, is of the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news that he preached. So the question is, do you possess a faith that has saved you and will save you in the end? Do you possess this faith this morning? Moving then from the possession of saving faith, we move to the confession of saving faith. Paul says here that a confession is necessary. Notice in verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So when you're talking about confessing Christ, you're talking about a person of history, a historical individual, and you're associating yourself with that individual as the one and only eternal God in whom we have hope. Confession of faith says this, We say it together once a month. I believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. That's your creed when you say, we believe Jesus Christ is Lord. So what does it require for us to be saved? What's the root demand? It's this simple. Obey the gospel. What does it mean to obey the gospel? To believe the gospel. To believe the gospel. You see, any man, any woman, any young person must commit himself to Christ in order to be saved by Christ. In other words, I'm not just saying this loose, in a loose-lipped fashion. I believe in Jesus. I said that for a good part of my life before I was actually saved. Having faith in God that saves, isn't to believe about him. Yeah, I believe about Jesus. It's not to believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But it means to believe him. Do you believe him? Having faith in Jesus Christ is to believe who he is, what he's done, and by believing his promises, his life, death, and resurrection, truly, in the heart, confessing with your mouth, you shall be saved. Now, I submit to you, beloved, That we don't understand faith if we think all it means is to believe in the sense of, you know, just accept these facts as true concerning Jesus and you'll be saved. Let let us not make that mistake. Meaning it is patently true that people who believe the facts about God and believe the facts about Jesus, when they die, many of them will go to hell. How do we know that? Well, because there's another group of creatures that believe With proper orthodoxy. And they're called demons. The Bible says. You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. And what do they do? They shudder. Jesus walked into a room. They shuddered. We know who you are. Jesus of Nazareth. The son of God. Have you come to punish us before the time? It's been said that Satan is the world's most orthodox theologian. I say amen to that. He knows the truth inside and out. Many people confess orthodox facts or, or give intellectual assent to data, but they don't believe in their heart. Faith must be followed by a confession with my willing lips and with my changed life, verse 10, 4. Small word, three letters, big meaning. Four. With the heart one believes and is what? Justified, declared free from all blame. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Indicating belief in the heart, confession of the mouth are not two things as much as they are two sides of the same thing. Two sides of the same coin. Resulting in justification. Declaring you free from blame. You see, Jesus is the word brought near. It says the word is near you. It's in your mouth. What does the Bible say about Jesus? Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The logos. The word. He humbled himself to the point of the cross. So mere profession of that word in no way justifies the sinner. Mouth profession and heart possession together justify the sinner. Do you possess? And do you confess? 4, verse 11. The scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Shame refers to last day's humiliation, judgment. And we see that if you just look back in chapter 9, verse 33. Uh, There's a stumbling stone, a cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of his kingdom. And notice it says there, Behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus is a stumbling stone for many people and a great offense. For me to declare his truth this morning, friends, and to say he is the only way, for some that are here this morning, that is offensive. Because it's the truth. And I love you enough to tell you the truth in hope that God might save you from experiencing shame, judgment, when you die or when he comes back. Now, finally, from possession of faith, confession of faith to proclamation or preaching of That saving faith. Paul declares to us in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Everyone from any nation. From every nation needs to hear this truth. People who live in every class. Every level of education. That's just one of the glorious things about the gospel friends. It reaches all peoples of all places. Every rung. On the social ladder. It reaches people of all lands. It reaches people of all languages, all ethnicities. It crosses borders. It breaks language barriers. It crosses ethnic and cultural divides. His gospel goes to the ignorant as well as to the intelligent. problem is with the intelligent, not many of them are saved, the Bible says. Not many wise. Many of the rich. Nothing wrong with being rich, amen? I wouldn't mind being rich. I have no problem with that, but I'm not. I have friends that are filthy rich. (laughs) Very few of them are saved. That's why Jesus said, it is easier for the camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. But they must hear the truth. They must hear the gospel. Preachers must what? Preach with authority. I don't care what kind of language. I don't care how well educated that they are, how poorly educated one is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that saves people from out of everywhere. This is it. It matters not who you are, how rich, how poor, how strong, how feeble, how smart, how dumb. Only the gospel saves. Now all of us are born sinners. I hope that we in this room and you folks, beloved, in the fellowship hall, I hope we all agree this morning, yeah, I'm a sinner. But no man or no woman will come to Christ unless the Spirit of God gives them life to believe, to come to Him by faith, to receive His grace and His mercy. That amount of faith may be small, as small as a mustard seed, But it doesn't matter how small it is. What matters about faith is the object of that faith. Is it Christ alone? Not Islam. Not Buddha. Not secular humanism. Saving faith must be in God's truth as stated here in his word this morning. Truth is not relative. Truth is absolute. Absolute. But whoever, and wherever you are, wherever they are from throughout the world, they must hear and know this, that is, have proper knowledge in the one true God. They must hear the true truth about God. The gospel must be preached. That's the resurrection command of Jesus. Preach the gospel to every creature. Every creature. Verse 14, but... Small word. Big meaning. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone what? Preaching. How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. Gospel means good news. The fact of the matter is, some people hearing the gospel will accept some people hearing the gospel will reject. Some will be saved. Some will remain lost. The preaching of Jesus Christ, the preaching of his cross, the preaching of the gospel always, always, always together, always produces division. Always. Some believe, some don't. Obedience to the gospel, once again, is acceptance of God's gospel, trusting and yielding my life to Jesus by what? Deeds? Works? No, faith. Faith confession and possession of faith and reliance in Jesus Christ the Lord that is again believing in the heart that is believing in the heart means to have confidence tr- confident trust in Jesus Christ his life his death his resurrection confessing with the mouth shows that one is saved saved from it's not from saved from God by God that is to be saved from his wrath that's hell and the resurrection proves that God's wrath against sin has been, here it is, quenched for all who believe. You live in Southern California. You're familiar with wildfires in Southern California, right? You may perhaps have experienced it or you've at least seen them on the news um, where dried up underbrush serves as fuel while the Santa Ana winds sweep and spread the blaze. One of the methods firefighters use, John must be out with his son, our firefighter captain. But one of the firefighters, uh, one of the methods that firefighters use is to, 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 to contain or stop the spread of the fire is to start a backfire. A backfire. And the reason is, when when the fire meets the break of the backfire, it'll die out because there's nothing else to what? To burn. There's nothing else to be consumed. Fire can't consume something that's already been burned. In a very similar way, when God set His only Son on the cross, He poured out all the fire of His wrath on Jesus... So that the ground around the the cross has all been consumed. Burned up by the wrath of God. The cross. So that. When the coming wrath of God sweeps on the day of judgment. And it will. Across God's universe. Or when you die. All who stand in faith on this resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. God's wrath will pass over them. They'll never taste it. Ever. Because they're forgiven and they've been shown his love and his mercy. That, you see, is how God justifies sinners, all of which is validated by his resurrection. He consumed, he absorbed that wrath. He died. Raised again, validating the fact that he did quench the wrath of God for all those who stand by faith. He justifies sinners on the basis of his son's death and accounts many righteous, confirmed by the resurrection of his only son. Question. Question. Are you counted in that number? You're here on Easter. Are you counted in that number? Can you, yes, can you say yes, I am accepted by God. Yes, my sins are forgiven. I know that on the day of his wrath or when I die or he returns because I'm standing on Christ by faith trusting in him in that burned over district that I will stand in his judgment because Jesus took mine. And I believe by what? Faith. It's simple to believe. So simple that It's infinitely hard unless the Holy Spirit of God falls upon someone and enables them to believe. God's wrath will not touch me because Jesus consumed it for me. That's how I know I'm going to heaven. I am a wretched, rotten sinner who is saved by grace. Oh, my life has changed. But I didn't change it. He did. When he made known to me the depth for which he went to save me. Beautiful gospel. Glorious gospel. Can you say that? Can you say, can you say this? That you know this, that you 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 can be assured of this, that you're forgiven of your sins? Because this is the gospel that comes to murders. Murders, I've never murdered anyone, but I know guys in prison who have. And they're saved because they believe. This is the gospel that goes out to adulterers, to liars, to lawbreakers, and the most heinous sinners of all. You know who they are? People who actually think they're good enough to get to heaven when they die. On their own merit. That's the worst. Worse than a murderer? Yes, if you don't repent. To them who believe, who repent of this self-righteousness, who repent of actions like this. His blood flows, drawing sinners to Christ by faith, enabling them to experience, experience His love and His grace and His mercy. This is why He died. He died for sinners like us. From all kinds of places, with all kinds of weird religious thoughts in our head, and He just cleans it out like He cleans the cobwebs out of the corners of any room. That's how you believe. He pardons sinners who will believe and embrace him by faith, justifying them based on his life, death, and resurrection. You know, maybe you're here this morning, and I'm closing up now. Maybe you're here this morning, and and I said this on Good Friday. Maybe you're here, you think that Jesus needs you to be here. Or that maybe you're doing him a kind of favor, you know, showing up on Easter morn. You know, showing some type of empathetic feeling for how he suffered on Friday. Or maybe it's something less. Maybe you're here because you're trying to prove, perhaps to mom, dad, or my children, perhaps, that you hold some kind of respect or pity for their Jesus. Let me say, he does not need your pity. He does not need your pity. Being here is not anything about you. It's about nothing you can provide for him. He needs nothing from you. He victoriously rose from the dead, proving to all he is Lord. You need him. Spare the pity. You need his pity. You need his mercy. And you need his grace. The gospel means good news. And it's only good news for those who are being saved. It's not good news for those who are perishing, says 2 Corinthians 2.15. The scripture goes on to say, to one, the gospel is the fragrance of death to death. To the other, it's the fragrance of life to life everlasting. Death to death or life to life there's no good news for those who remain in unbelief. And Easter morning only magnifies that reality. Am I, am I taking advantage of the day? You better believe I am. <laughs> That's how much love by the grace of God I have for his gospel and how much love I have for people who keep rejecting this truth. So don't play with him. Don't trifle with him, because if God did not spare his own son, his sinless son, his perfect, holy, one and only son, he will certainly not spare you of your sin. He's the only way of escape. Don't play with him. You're the one in need. You need a substitute who stands in your place who bore the wrath of the Father for sin and sinners like me. And he covers your sin. sin. He declares you as righteous. All of the righteousness of Christ is put on your account, whereas all of your sin was laid upon him as he bore the wrath of the Father on that cross. Resurrection proves that he's the only way. So, what must you do to be saved, friends? If you're here and you're not saved, you simply must believe. Believe what? Number one, in the supremacy of Christ. Number two, in the deity of Christ. Thirdly, you believe in his death and resurrection. From the grave, you must call upon Jesus to save you. Admit that you can't make it on your own. Don't be like Gandhi. Don't be like Gandhi. Who thought Jesus was a good example, but not the Savior. Because the scripture says that God the Father has given Jesus the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, the scripture says, for an hour is coming when all who hear are in the tombs will hear his voice. And they will come out, those who have done good, that is having faith in Christ, to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, that is remain in unbelief, to the resurrection of judgment. So don't refuse him, but look, friends, look at how far he's gone to save sinners, delighting to show mercy while he poured out judgment on his son. And only in the son are you guaranteed eternal life and resurrection from your grave. Perhaps today, this Easter Sunday, is the birthday of hope. For you. That is the word of faith we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth. That Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved.